With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Om Shanti. The time that we choose to be aware doesn't necessarily require me to just sit and meditate. But even while I walk and move around, I can be in a meditative awareness, which is awareness of the soul, the original, eternal imperishable being of light. For a little while, I'd like to invite you to be present, to be here, and to be now. Allow your mind to settle in the moment, to relax. This meditation is about awareness. It's about becoming aware of your original and eternal self. It's about connecting to your truth. Let go of your name. And observe yourself feeling nameless. Let go of your gender to discontinue thinking you're a man or a woman. Let it go and observe how you would feel walking around without a gender. Let go of the role that you play 
and let go of the titles that you own. Observe how you're feeling as you are gradually letting go. Let go of your religion and put it aside just for now. And let go of your nationality and even the language that you're accustomed to. Imagine you have no name, gender, role, title, religion, nationality, or even a language. Ask yourself. How do you feel at this moment? And in this feeling, who would think of you and who would you think of? Supreme Soul would think of you, and you, the liberated soul, would think of the Supreme. In this state of absolute freedom, I am truly who I am. A free peaceful, pure, immortal, and eternal soul. Allow yourself to just be absorbed in this awareness. this time. Hello everyone, welcome to America Meditating Radio. That was Letting Go from Inclusion Revolution Together with Love by yours truly. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. And I hope everything's in a good space for you and you are in your second week of um, staying at home and just calming down. It's all good. It's also actually our time to reconnect with ourselves, reconnect with our loved ones, and to find um, resolve within yourself. It's not a prison sentence. It is a time of exile where we are doing deeper thinking and maybe we'll emerge out of it with higher living. Of course, it's natural for us to always think of the best in any situation that occurs in our lives, right? We always want to move forward and be a better version than what we were in the past. 
and at the same token, what we do today will determine that result in the future. And so it's really important for us to take advantage of this time, and it's really important for us to um, acknowledge the power in silence, and it's really important to really come from a place of spiritual love and acceptance of one another. If we can't do that now, um, where the the globe, the world, has paused for a week or two, then when are we going to do it? There's absolutely no excuse. And I really see this as a blessing in disguise, where we're really being asked at a spiritual and conscious level to sort out certain things within sight. So, you know, it looks like a global health crisis, but it's also a global spiritual health opportunity for us to really come back to the original virtues and qualities of the soul. Today, I'm really excited to welcome our guest. Our guest on the show is Alana Sheikh, and she's a global health consultant who specializes in strengthening health systems. She holds a bachelor's degree from Georgetown University and a master's degree in public health from Boston University. Alana has lived in seven countries and is the author of What's Killing Us? It's a practical guide to understanding our biggest global health problem. Recent article publications include an article on global health security in Britain's Daily Telegraph newspaper and an essay in the Annual Review of Comparative and International Education. Her recent TED Talk on Coronavirus is Our Future has received over 3 million views. Today we're privileged to welcome Alana Sheikh to America Meditating. Alana, thank you for joining us today. I'm so glad that I could be here. Yeah, me too. Are you in Sri Lanka now? Yes, I am. Oh, lovely. How's the weather? (laughs) Beautiful, as always. So many people don't do that anymore. They basically go, how are you? Are you okay? Oh, my God, these are interesting times. (laughs) (laughs) It's been interesting. But you've been aware of this. You've been aware of this coming, haven't you? But there's also been conversations about all the fundings that governments put in military and war instead of really the well-being of its citizens. So it's been a profound time. What are you feeling at a personal level in terms of witnessing this global epidemic? On a personal level, it's been genuinely shocking because even though I I have been working in global health for so long and thinking about these things, to see sort of one of your worst nightmares made real is a a vivid and astonishing experience. And when you talk about pandemics, you always mean this as an exercise for something that may or may not happen. And to see it happen is is genuinely unsettling, no matter how much knowledge you have. Um, Being on my path of spirituality, too, um, a few years ago, our result of the elections in America, and it had nothing to do with the president. It had to do with the consciousness of our country, I had gone into a real interesting place where I was just like, what in the world is going on? Um, And I think that prepared me for what we're also witnessing with COVID-19. I wanted to have this conversation with you on two perspectives, your personal perspective and experiences and what you're doing to protect yourself, but also the practical aspect of what COVID-19 really is. In terms of how you're protecting yourself, are you keeping yourself at home? Because one of the things that I had heard in your TED Talk was, you know, it's not like that is your sole protection. It's really washing your hands. Uh, I am, in fact, keeping my entire family at home. Um, We Mm -hmm. do go out to go grocery shopping occasionally, but that's the extent of it. 
And I've asked everybody who is willing to listen to my advice in my personal life to also stay home. Um, We're being particularly careful because my mother will be um, 77 in July, and she lives with us. So I I told my mother just now, actually, that, like, you are not leaving this house for the foreseeable future. I will tell you when you can leave the house, but as long as it is, you're staying inside. And she said, that's fine. I like the house. My grandchildren are here. (laughs) Oh, that's good to know. I'm glad to hear that. I have also an elder here as well, and... She kind of always wants to go out and go wherever we need to go for important errands. And she has this unbelievable tendency, Alana, of putting her hands in her mouth. And I just say, would you just (laughs) stop doing that? Despite how many times we've cleansed the place, she just won't hear. So we continue to look out for her. So before we get into the deeper discussion of COVID-19, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your background in global health? Sure. So I'm a consultant, which means I've worked for a lot of different organizations, some companies, nonprofits, NGOs, uh, the U.S. government, and that basically I help design programs, look at problems and think about solutions, do monitoring and evaluation, and I come to it from a systems thinking perspective. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, tell us about this virus and what's let's say, the coronavirus and COVID-19? Because I know it's been, like, changing as we've been moving along. What's the difference, Alana, between the two? So a coronavirus is a category, and there's actually seven different kinds of coronaviruses. And the one that we're calling COVID-19 is actually the newest one. And the 19 in COVID-19 is because it emerged in 2019. And if we're going deep into sort of the naming details, COVID-19 is actually the name for the disease caused by this seventh coronavirus. And then there's separate naming for the virus itself. But I think the most useful way to refer to it is as COVID-19. I never knew that. Wow. So as we know, it's having a devastating consequence around the entire globe. What are your thoughts about this and what do you think it's teaching us? That's a great question. And I think Mm -hmm. it's teaching us a few things. And one thing that keeps coming to me over and over is that this is very much about an abstract concept suddenly made concrete. That it's almost sort of the same way that we've seen people talking about climate change, only it's happened at very high speed. It's gone from a vague threat to something the experts were warning about to something that seemed far away but serious to something that's happening right there on our front lawn. And it sort of moves through these stages very rapidly. And I think it's really a call to action around the idea that we are a global community and that we are one planet and we are one group of people and that thinking on a purely nationalistic level isn't an effective way of addressing situations like this. It isn't working with climate change and it didn't work for COVID-19. You know, so many in the community of quote-unquote so-called consciousness or illuminaries, we've consistently spoken about the interconnectedness that we all have with one another to change the I into the we. And I just, you know, I can only envision that after this, we will be able to be more connected and more responsible, that what our thoughts, words, and deeds actually do is that it ripples out and it connects to another person. And so to what extent am I responsible for having thoughts that are beneficial or peaceful and pure or even cooperative? You know, so I've often thought that it's all about the interconnectedness. One thing collapsed massively, it can impact everyone else around the world. What do you think the why? The the why weren't we more prepared 
for an outbreak like this? What was the reason behind it? So to some degree, it depends on who you mean when you say we. Because there were countries government. that were prepared and there were there were governments that were prepared. You know, we saw a rapid response from Singapore, for example, when they saw the first signs of COVID-19. Um, we even saw a pretty rapid response in China, truthfully. Like, China managed to suppress their outbreak in a way that Italy has not. Like, China's taken a lot of criticism over this, but the, they acted quickly and they brought the outbreak to an end. On the other hand... There are countries that were not particularly prepared for this. The U.S., most of Europe, Canada. And I think, I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. One of the reasons, I think, is that it is so abstract to think. I think it's both abstract and deeply frightening. And I suspect that that's the exact category of things that are most difficult for people to consider, abstract and very frightening. And so everybody wants to just put it out of their mind. And if you're putting it out of your mind, you're not pushing your government to prepare for it. You're not asking your leadership to do things to get ready. And then if you're in office, if you're a politician, there's not a lot of incentive to try to get money or preparation for something that your voters don't care about. You know, that makes me think. You know, the the U.S. considers that it's moved pretty fast on, um, at least the leadership says it's moved pretty fast in curtailing the epidemic and that they're doing a great job. Would you agree, on a scale from 1 to 10, with 10 being the best for doing and handling it well, how would you rate the U.S.? I mean, that's not something I can really get into. Mm -hmm. I can talk about, you know, that there are signs of what a really good response would look like, and that would be case numbers that are not continuing to increase. That would be testing enough people to have the kind of granular data that you need to actually track an outbreak properly, whereas what we've seen in the U.S. is that we don't have enough tests and we can't really track the outbreak the way we want to because at this point people are only getting tested if the test result will affect their medical care. Mm. And that's a problem from an epidemiological perspective. What did Singapore do in China um, that made them curtail the spread of the virus that maybe we can learn from. So they they very quickly realized that there was a new virus. Like the cases were reported quickly, and in China's case, they have a Center for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, much like our own CDC, that saw these new, um, the cases of a new virus, recognized that it was going to be a problem, started doing epidemiological tracking, and started doing sort of old school public health work that we call contact tracing which is when someone's infected, you actually go around and talk to everybody who they may have crossed paths with and test them for this disease so that you can figure out how it's spreading and put a stop to it. And then they moved rapidly to things like travel restrictions and quarantines, keeping people in place. Once you couldn't track at the individual anymore, they started locking down populations. Now, the challenge there is that's a very different approach to working with your communities and with your country. And China, as we know, has a very different approach to civil rights and human rights than Europe and the United States. So they felt comfortable taking a level of drastic action that I don't know that Western democracies would ever be comfortable with. Such as? Such as being very draconian about telling people, like, you know, you cannot leave your house. Like, not voluntary, you know, but actually just saying, no, you stay inside. Mm. And, of course, Russia's not testing for COVID-19 so that they don't have to admit that they have any. Right. That's interesting. You have said in your TED Talk that um, there will be more outbreaks and epidemics in the future. Any reason why? How can you be so certain? 
because the conditions that create these outbreaks are increasing, not decreasing. So COVID-19 is a coronavirus, which are zoonotic viruses, which means they transfer from animals to people. And anytime you have a wild animal population that has pathogens like virus or bacteria circulating in that population, they can come into contact with people or domestic animals and the virus can jump and it can move into the human population. And the choices we are making as the human race, we're pushing into more and more wild spaces. We're taking territory away from wild animals and we're meeting new types of bacteria, new types of viruses that we've never encountered before. And some of those are going to be very dangerous to us. Now, I was told that, um, let's say, like your pets or your animals, they can't get the coronavirus. Is that true? I'm not a physician. I have seen reports in both directions on that. I've seen some accounts that pets can get it and some accounts that they don't tend to get it, and I am not equipped to actually evaluate them and tell you for certain. Okay. So there are some countries that have implemented travel restrictions, Nepal, India. The State Department has offered an advisory report to also restrict travel um, outside of the country or even domestic. Are they really helpful? I mean, does... Uh, quarantines really work? Do they help us? Yes, they do. Um, It's really hard to accept because they're deeply unpleasant for us, but they really do work in slowing transmission, in particular of COVID-19, but in general. It's one of a set of tools that you use to bring an outbreak to an end. It's not the only tool, which is what I was trying to get at in my talk, but it is one of the tools that you need. Interesting. We hear uh, medical experts saying we need to flatten the curve of how fast COVID-19 is spreading. Could you elaborate a little bit more about what that means? So the idea is that COVID-19 is going to spread through most of our population. It's infectious enough that it that is basically inevitable. And what we can control here is not whether or not it spreads, but the rate at which it spreads. So if it spreads rapidly, then you get a very tall curve picture like a mountain and the number of people who need intensive care and the number of people who need in particular ventilators rapidly exceeds the capacities of the U.S. healthcare system. Now, if we flatten the curve, now picture like a a sort of high up plateau, like a long high up plateau. And the idea is that the same number of people do end up getting infected, but it happens over a longer period of time and we don't exceed the health system's capacity to care for them. What do you think, Alana, are the changes that are needed to our global healthcare systems to perhaps minimize the impact of such outbreaks and epidemics? What we need is to be ready in our own countries for when these things come to us, and we also need to take action to help every country in the world be prepared. And the reason for that is, Honestly, we got kind of lucky that it started out in China because China did slow it down a little and China reported good data upwards. If you look at some of the other places we could have had a disease emerge, uh, Papua New Guinea comes to mind where the government has really not invested at all in health systems. It could have spread so much more before anybody was even reporting data about it. What we need is basically every country in the world, no matter how poor, to be able to identify a new disease when it breaks out and start sharing information so the rest of the world can get ready. And for a country to be able to do that, that basically means they need a healthcare system. They need people who catch this new disease to have a place to go. 
They need a healthcare provider who can diagnose it and provide them with some treatment and report the disease outbreak upwards to epidemiological authorities so they can start sharing information and tracking it. I'm learning a lot from our conversation. Thank you so much. Our medical personnel are very concerned about the lack of medical supplies and protective equipment that are needed. What weaknesses has COVID-19 actually revealed in our global health supply chains? The challenge is that we have, across industries, not just in global health, but sort of throughout modern capitalism as we know it, shifted over to sort of these lean, just-in-time supply systems. So that, you know, when you only have, say, a week of masks left, you put in your order and they show up four days later and then you have your next month of masks and so on. There's no big stockpile you're holding. There's nowhere that you can go that you have a lot of things. So when demand suddenly surges, you have to put in an order and you have to wait for it to ship. And most of it comes from China, And, and, in, right? and most of it comes from China. So that actually, you know, that's also a weakness in the sense that if China is suddenly unable to produce, then we also have a problem. Mm. Now, when I went to India in February, came back at the beginning of March, and very few were wearing face masks, <laughs> and I just wore it because I did want to perhaps accidentally put my hand in in, in my mouth, you know, because we touch our face hundreds or if not thousands of times per day. And so I had my mask on, but I noticed that a lot of people didn't wear masks. And you've advised people not to wear masks. And to be very honest, I actually don't like them, Alana. Yeah, so nobody really likes wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the issues. And so often when – actually, let me step back here for a second. So the reason I recommended not to wear a mask and the reason that CDC and WHO have been recommending not to wear a mask is that they're in short supply right now, and we actually don't have enough masks for healthcare providers. And healthcare providers are at a much higher risk of infection than your regular person walking around. And so to some degree, you, a low-risk person, are functionally taking a mask away from a high-risk person who's putting themselves on the line to provide healthcare. If there were enough masks for everyone, then I think everybody should wear a mask, yes. But there aren't. Well, interesting. So how should we protect ourselves, Elena? You should stay home. You should <laughs> limit uh, your social contacts with other people. You should wash your hands a lot. Washing hands is probably the biggest thing that you can do. And you're right, you shouldn't touch your face. And that is one of the things that a mask can do for you if you're a regular person is the mask can help keep you from touching your face. But you can also train yourself not to touch your face. How? When I was a teenager, I had terrible acne. And when I touched my face, I'd break out. And let me tell you, about six months of being an awkward 14-year-old will take that habit right away from you. <laughs> I'll agree with you on that one. Actually, I just got a pimple and I go, I'm almost 60. Why am I still getting acne? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um, any other advice? It's hard to be separated from people. It's yeah. a hard time to have a sudden vision that you're part of a global community and this matters and yet simultaneously be cut off from your global community. Like it's a weird and awkward and painful experience that I think brings out a lot of conflicting emotions in us. And one way I've been trying to think about it lately is that, you know, our grandparents went through wartime rationing, right? And, you know, maybe right now we're rationing social contact. This is the time when our social contact is rationed, but it won't last forever things will change, we'll be able to stop. And we made it through World War II and we'll made it, make it through this. Nice, very hopeful. So in terms of after this, post 
COVID-19. I mean, you know, we have a lot of time in our hands now, at least some of us, and the tendency of the human intellect is to project into the future. When you have found that you've had those moments, what do you feel humanity will perhaps evolve into, if you think it will, after COVID-19? How do you think it's going to change us? What have been your thoughts? I know what I'd like to see. Yeah, I'd like to see a renewed appreciation for the people and communities that make up our lives and that having been deprived of in-person connection with people, we'll realize how much we treasure that and how much it matters. And I'd like to see a new ability to think of ourselves as a whole planet. And, you know, we don't have many planetary events anymore. One of the things they talk about is, like, even television, like, people don't watch the same TV at the same time. You know, aside from the World Cup, there's not a lot we do as a whole world. And, you know, this is a really terrible experience that basically our whole planet is experiencing simultaneously. And maybe there's a way that could bring us together. On the flip side, I think that poor people and vulnerable people are going to be hit hardest by this experience both because they're more likely to be very sick or even die from this because they have less access to quality health care and because the economic impact of having to stay home, of not being able to go to work, is going to hit poor and vulnerable people much harder. So the dark vision is that global inequality gets much worse because the global middle class stayed home and teleworked and did their Zoom conferences and spent extra time on their hobbies and the poor people had to go out and do their day labor jobs and provide the support industries that let everybody else stay home, and they got sicker and they got poorer as a result. Is there anything you can suggest that we could do to offer support for them post-COVID-19? I think we have a tendency as almost a species to blame poor people for being poor as though they somehow caused it. And I think if we remember that they most certainly did not cause this, that plenty of people have become impoverished by the experience of COVID-19 and plenty of people who are already in poverty are now in deeper poverty because of the capricious nature of this virus and because of the cruel nature of global capitalism and feel empathy and compassion and make public policies that are based on that kind of empathy and compassion. Hmm. You know, it's always... um something that I think about is always helping the underdog, but also just to keep thinking about, well, what sacrifices do I need to make so still you can eat? So let's say, for example, I have two meals a day, then I can make a sacrifice and just have one, because if you don't get, you're going to die, you're not going to make it through. So, you know, I, I always try to invite people, let's think about how we can somehow share our abundance or share our well-being with others and not just hoard for the fear that it won't ever be enough. And I do believe it requires some sort of a conscious awareness, some something about us, about who we really are, that we can step more into the deeper spiritual aspects of our immortality or our ability to really thrive because of our virtues and our values versus to be so externally driven with how is the economy going to be impacted? So what, we're going to lose a few, a few people, but they might be the poor. And just, you know, all of that stuff that I've often just wished, like you said, what I wish for is that we can somehow think about, well, how can all of us benefit from this? How can we all 
look out for each other. And I send that thought out in my meditations in the morning, Alana, that please, we're leaders, you know, think about how we can all deal with this together because this whole energy of a very few having so much and, and so many who don't have enough, uh, I just feel like maybe this virus is helping us to somehow leverage all of that just to get it all leveraged out and to have more of a bartering system, you know. Um, before I end the show with you, your thoughts about God, has that energy come up in you as a thought? Or have you heard friends talk about God or where is God in all of this or anything of that nature? Have you heard conversations about that? Because there's been a lot of online programs going on here in the U.S. I don't know what's happening in Sri Lanka, but lots of people are doing prayer calls, um, meditation programs. They're talking more about, you know, having a relationship or connection to the divine. I mean, what I've seen is among my friends that do have deep religious faith that that's been a source of joy and comfort to them right now. And that people are being called more and more to the aspects of religious faith to talk about things like protecting the poor, that talk about justice, and that talk about equity. That's what they talk about. And I read a, a blog by a Catholic blogger, actually, and she was talking about the idea that like being pro-life is about human lives and that the idea that suggesting that we just lose some people to protect the economy is not a pro-life concept. It's not treasuring the sanctity of life, which I thought was a really interesting perspective. And, you know, there's a sort of a term there that's gained a certain political meaning, and it was interesting to see her look at it in a deeper sense. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's re- that's beautiful. Well, um, Alana, Sheikh, as we come to a close to our show, you've educated me tremendously, and I thank you for that. Really, thank you so much, and I'm sure our listeners feel the same. Any final words that you'd like to share and leave with our listeners today? We can, if we choose, as a country and as a planet, have this be the shock to our healthcare system that makes it stronger later, the shock that we learn from and we use it to get ready for next time. Or we can have this be the shock that makes our healthcare system weaker and a little bit less prepared for next time. And it's really up to us to force our leadership to make the right choices so that we are stronger next time. Where can our listeners learn more about you and your work? So I think that if you want to learn more about global health and global health issues, there are a lot of good places to start, including the World Health Organization website. Um, I do have a short book that you mentioned in the beginning about uh, global health problems, but it was written in 2012, so it's getting a little old. The concepts are still true. The numbers are out of date. And um, I have a website called tomorrowglobal.com. Beautiful. Thank you so very much. I've really appreciated your thoughts. And I still I can hear your Boston accent, even if you're in Sri Lanka. <laughs> it's just hard to let go. So um, You know, I'm actually from Syracuse, New York. Are you? Oh, my so gosh. You're close. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Anyway, look, thanks so much. Stay safe. Give a hug to mom for me and lots of good wishes. All right. Stay safe yourself. Thanks. Take care. That was Alana Sheikh, uh, a global health consultant and expert. And um, even though she's written a kind of an older book in 2012, the title is What's Killing Us? A Practical Guide to Understanding Our Biggest Global Health Problem. She did say the numbers have shifted, but still it might be a good read to go into. Well, as 
Alana has given us a lot of wonderful tips and methods that we can apply. I do feel more comforted after my conversation, quite practical and very open and easy. So remember, as we continue to travel through this journey together, no one can take away your happiness, folks, unless you give them permission, and we really are here to love each other the same. So let's continue our traffic control, which is to pause every hour and hour for 60 seconds and send your peace to humanity so that we can make the future much brighter than it is today. Here's Kristen Hoffman, The Rose. Take care, everyone. Be well. Forgot my light inside, but now I'm holding a new sun, and I know this life has just begun.
I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.